This is just a warning that this is not a kid-safe episode. It could be triggering for some people. I'm not gonna lie and say I'm sorry that I've been gone for so long. I don't really feel bad because I work a lot and I'm raising an almost five-year-old, but I feel kind of like I let myself down. This is a pet project. This is supposed to be something passionate for me. And there have been some frustrations uh, related to not getting enough sleep, it being abnormally hot here for this time of year. Like I'm sweating as I speak. Yeah, um, and a lot of stuff came up. Things got really hectic. But I have returned, and tonight's topic is going to be epistemology and metaphysics as they concern spirituality. Is contemporary spirituality a vestige of primitive religion? Are we hardwired to be spiritual? According to many scholars, this is the case. They think that science can answer all of our questions. Perhaps epistemology will help us sort this out. Epistemology is one of the three main branches of philosophy. Metaphysics and ethics are the other two main branches. But what does this mean exactly, the study of knowledge? Long-term students of philosophy tend to make few assumptions, but it's hard to have a conversation without them, and it's hard to create any kind of system of rules or thinking without them. At the very least, we usually need basic metaphysical assumptions, as can be found in science. Not everyone is aware of this, but there are many such assumptions in science, such as the principle of causality. We tend to take it as common sense that there is such a thing as cause and effect. We see a ball get pushed or touched, and then we see it move. Both Kant and Hume posited that the relation of cause and effect is not something that comes to us through sensory perception, but rather comes from the mind. Just as there are these underlying assumptions in science, we can find many of them in spirituality. One of the few assumptions I'm comfortable adopting as a belief is that consciousness is not confined to the body. This is a central tenet of most spiritual systems, and it is something that science has established to be likely enough, at least some areas of science, such as particle physics. So the conclusion can be validly drawn that consciousness persists or is outside of the body. Yet even when we establish some of these core assumptions or beliefs in spirituality, when we try to explain exactly how it might work, we often end up sounding nebulous. Any valid assumptions tend to be about fragments of a whole we can't grasp. In fact, we run into this problem anywhere that we try to, as humans, find essential or complete explanations for the universe or for reality. And this was shown by Gödel's in Completeness Theorems. Now, while these are mathematic axioms, they can also be see they also have ramifications that extend beyond that math. Some people take these theorems to mean that there is no way to know the entirety of the universe. 
and no way to create a system that encapsulates all of reality, defines all of it. And that seems reasonable enough. And one thing that spirituality tries to do is to encapsulate reality, to define it in an ultimate way. Epistemology looks at different styles of belief, reasoning behind them, different ways of explaining things. It helps us to see that there are different extremes of belief and then gradients in between. So we commonly have skeptics and cynics and wholehearted believers and then somewhere in between, like probably most people fall. But we have um, these cynics who they won't believe certain things no matter what they're shown or what, what you tell them. And then there are the skeptics where they're more rational and they, they just really need to see a little bit more evidence for something. And for any area of thought, you can find people who are on the skeptical side or not. But we notice more with spirituality because it concerns so many things that cannot be proven in a scientific or empirical way. Empiricism being this system of thought that posits that things can only be proven through our sensory experience. So, for example, the way that scientists tend to take in knowledge is very empirical, unless you get into the more theoretical areas, which have actually proven true, ultimately. that Things that started out very theoretical, such as Einstein's equations, but will we ever be able to provide solid proof that would satisfy your standard scientist that the spirit realm really exists and that consciousness survives? Because of the elusive nature of the spirit realm, this seems highly unlikely. Yet, as I have discovered for myself and many others have throughout history, the spiritual world can be discovered personally. We can have subjective experiences, ones that we can't necessarily show to others as proof, but which we which satisfy our own need for understanding. And we can, using the tools of philosophy, look at some of the more common assumptions in, of spirituality and maybe some less common ones to see if they seem valid or reasonable, to see if the conclusions follow from the premises, whether we agree with them ultimately or not. So a common assumption is that there is a force or a being that created the universe. Another common one is that good and bad actions or intentions return to us. These both seem to satisfy some common sense or intuitive understanding about reality that a lot of human beings have. They also seem reasonable based on experience and what we can observe. We might imagine that there is a simple argument constructed within the unconscious of most human minds that there is always something that precedes a given thing. So a thing doesn't come out of nothing. So that is one reason to suspect that there might be a sort of God being or force. For example, multiverses smashing into each other, then creating new multiverses so that reality continues on inevitably. So we can see that a lot of the most common assumptions in spirituality aren't necessarily irrational or totally wrong-headed, but a lot of the less common but more multidunious assumptions for people who are spiritual can muddy the water. Atomism of beliefs 
leaves a subjective feeling in the mouth of a cynic and arms them with much fodder. So for instance, a lot of New Agers, but not all of them, <laughs> will believe that each of us is assigned a guide. And then there are people who think, well, everyone's assigned about seven guides. No, everyone gets one, says this person over here. Another person says, it's possible to just not have a guide. So when we get into this gray area, it starts to make things look shakier. One might wonder why there would be all of these different atomistic kind of beliefs popping up increasingly over time, whereas certain church orders and certain pagan beliefs were probably a lot more codified. And this is where epistemology can border upon psychology, as you can see a lot in the history of philosophy where epistemology started looking at the sense organs versus how the mind worked in a more abstract way, separate from the sense organs, and they were grappling with this uh, conflict between idealism and realism, or what epistemology could possibly provide as evidence. Considering the wild proliferation of varying divergent beliefs within New Age communities, other alternative spiritualities, and even within Christianity, we might see the simple fact that population has exploded on the on the earth and there are going to be more ideas and liberal rights have increased. But perhaps it is also ingrained in this historical juncture for the masses to fear what they perceive as imposed systems. When they feel they can choose in order to define individual selves, they feel safer and more satisfied. Sometimes they might only know how to flip a system on its head or to cling to its extreme reverse. Or does the human mind need rigid structure? Do we face mental breakdown when there is too much of the unknown and not enough answers? Skeptics will say that you should not believe something you have little experience with or which, for which there is insufficient proof. Yet many do have experiences and psychical research has shown statistically significant results in many areas, such as when they've studied mediums, when, um, when they've studied psi and remote viewing, Perhaps what is really needed is personal experience, because no amount of studies would really overcome that the physical realm seems to not be in keeping with the spiritual realm, and everything that you are experiencing through most of your life phenomenologically, with your, with your sensory perception, whatever you believe this to be, you can, believe, you can be an idealist, you can say that I don't know if all of this is real, I'm just going to bracket reality, but these are my experiences. Kind of like going back to Descartes' view of I think, therefore I am. All I've got here is a mind. Um, but what if what people really need is not more psychical research, but their own personal experiences, which go beyond the rigid religions and the traditions they were handed in their upbringing, in their culture, and goes beyond this kind of need for constant... Um, falsification and scientific experiments done in a more traditional empirical way. So what if it takes an openness or faith spirit to manifest in a way that satisfies a personal need for proof? And that's what's really at the heart of this. We are so ensconced in our materialism, our constant gratification of the senses, and we don't have a state of contemplation where deeper understanding would come to us in order to have these experiences that would open us up to something more. 
what if that's at the root of so much of the cynicism about spirituality? But then as we see, spirituality is more prone to generalization stemming from personal experience. But while interpretation may falter, there are those shared conclusions. This is where logical thinking can help create a shortcut in testing if a belief is valid. We can look at extremes. For example, I recently listened to a podcast where a medium stated that people with lingering poltergeists in their homes are inviting trouble due to a need to recreate the feeling of childhood trauma. She had complained that she had tried to help them. They had performed so many exercises that were supposed to cure them of the poltergeists, and still the activity occurred. She was blaming their childhood trauma. And I think a step back could be taken here, and we could think, well... In all cases of poltergeists who don't go away, do we really believe that trauma is the reason for this? What are some other possible explanations? Just, just the ability to open yourself up and go, what are some other explanations? It can be really helpful in examining your own beliefs. Also, having the ability to find the most generous interpretation of an opposing argument to yours is also incredibly important in thinking carefully about our beliefs. People often cling to tradition or spurn it reflexively. In the West, we have an epidemic of people reacting to Christianity one way or another. And there is this deep bifurcation that runs through our entire society, a lot of it having to do with white Christian male landowners owning slaves and creating a sort of spiritual sickness and divide within our entire country. So that's here in the U.S., but also just in the West in general, there's a sort of, I think, spiritual sickness that results from the control of the church that went on for so long and reactions against it. It can be frustrating when new doctrines are created in reaction to old, old rigid ones that have such a hold. And a lot of the New Age stuff is guilty of this, and I can see why people react then against New Age. But instead of everybody reacting, stopping and learning to examine our own beliefs could help us all be more charitable toward each other and to move forward with a greater enlightenment in a time when we have access to knowledge and experience that just was inaccessible to most human beings throughout history. Before closing, I always like to include a little bit of my own personal experience somewhere in here. So I'm going to share just a few things that have happened that have really been convincing for me that there was something more and I just want to state that I think that most humans in this day and age, we need such a burden of proof in order to accept this stuff that we have to accumulate so many experiences, often over a number of years, to overcome our doubts. One of the most convincing experiences I have had has been receiving knowledge that there was no way I could have, I could have had by ordinary means. So... One instance of this was when I was working at a radio station as a university student, once again at UC Davis, um, in my early 20s, really young, <laughs> really naive, um, and prone to walking by myself for long stretches sometimes in the deep of, of night, which I know now not to do. But in any case, I was given this time slot of 2 o'clock a.m., the most unfavorable slot, because I was a newbie. And this was my one and only term. I just wanted to try out this. It was just a fun exploration to do the DJ work. I don't even know if I had listeners. It didn't really matter to me. 
and it was just a music show, some music that I was fond of. Um, but in any case, I was walking home one night after work, so maybe it was four o'clock in the morning, pitch dark, with some lights around, but I passed the gas station that was sort of kitty corner to the campus. I don't know if it's still there, but that's it was there while I went to that school. And I saw these guys, and they were kind of hanging their heads out their window wildly with stringy hair. They looked like drug addicts. It just was kind of immediately recognizable. And I thought kind of, oh, maybe they came off the highway. There are a couple roads that will take you right to the freeway in and out of Davis. Um, so someone could make a quick get away. And so I felt a little unnerved. And that was when a thought entered my head that there's no way I would have known. And this was what it was. They are going to circle all the way around the giant block because there really wasn't much of a um, break in there. It was, it was a really huge block that this, was, this gas station was on. They're going to circle all the way around and come back and stop and try to grab you. Like that basically the thought was just suddenly in my head. And I knew it. It was with that kind of knowing where you don't doubt it. I didn't question it. I knew it. And I don't know how I would know it that way. And by the way, I think I was an atheist at the time. Like, it didn't fit with my own beliefs at the time at all to have this kind of an experience. And I, I, I think I carried it with me for decades going, I, I can't quite explain that. But it didn't turn me, like, spiritual overnight. So I was walking along that side of the block all the way down toward my apartment. I reached the, the other end of the block that I was on which this was like a shorter end of the block, by the way. So I got to the end and then suddenly I heard these tires screeching as their car pulled to a halt. It had gone all the way around the block. I'd, I had seen it exit the gas station and head off. Um, but I didn't, this is hard to explain. There was no way I could have known which way they were gonna drive or that they'd circle all the way around the block. There was just no way to know that. They seemed like they were out of their mind, not able to even think clearly from their behavior. But so they came up and they kind of stopped on the corner of the block. And I was standing right there about to cross the street at the light. And then a door swung open. It all happened like within a second or two. And I took three giant steps backward. It was like I was prepared mentally so I could handle it. I took these three giant steps backward and then they were kind of shocked and they realized it was an easy bait and they took off just as quickly as they'd stopped. And so my life was saved by being given this piece of knowledge ahead of time. Now, a cynic might say, oh, whatever, you're very intuitive. You just, you were afraid and it was a survival instinct kicking in, right? And a skeptic might say, well, you know, maybe there's like some universal consciousness and you just tapped into that for that time being but at this point in my understanding of how things work in the greater reality I think someone was looking out for me I don't know if it was a spirit guide I don't know if it was a deceased loved one don't know if it was a god being I don't I can't tell you exactly what's out there but I do think there's definitely something more so that was one experience more recently uh, about a, a year and a half ago, um, an aunt of mine passed away, but a couple a couple days before she died, maybe maybe a day and a half before, 
I suddenly had one of those knowing messages in my head, and I had no reason to have this message. She had been in an ill state of health for a very long time, and there was no way to know exactly when she would pass, and I hadn't been given any recent warning, oh, she's about to go, it wasn't like this, but suddenly I just had in my head, Aunt Fran is going to die in a day. I literally, that's, that's all I got, it was just this brief sentence. And it was once again that feeling of just, this is truth. Like, I couldn't doubt it. I just knew it. And no, this is not the normal way that I um, breach conclusions or understand things, not to my knowing. This was really, like, starkly obvious and unusual. And so I kind of started to prepare emotionally. This was a person who, she was my godmother. We wrote letters back and forth while I was growing up. She was a mother figure to me when I was raised by my aunt who could often be remote and distant from me since I wasn't one of her biological children. Um, this person meant a lot to me and it, the sense I get for why I got the message was that it prepared me emotionally so that I was more ready for it. And yes, sadly enough, she did pass shortly after and it's not like it was easy just because I got the message, but I think that that made it a little bit, a little bit easier. Now, I personally want to say, why would a universal consciousness have a motivation to communicate this kind of a thing? Why would I suddenly communicate something like that to myself through the universal consciousness? I had no sense that she, I had no way to know or verify that she was going to die. To me, the most parsimonious and reasonable explanation actually is that there are beings separate from our bodies who care and from our personal spirit who care about us and who are actually looking out for us from that side, from beyond the veil, however you want to put it. Okay, and I have one more instance like this that's coming to mind. This was back when I lived in Sacramento after I had left UC Davis. I took a long, long break from school and moved with a partner into Sacramento and kind of derailed my life, honestly, and did a lot of strange things, but you sometimes have to learn and then you value those lessons. They become part of you. But I was walking along the sidewalk there, uh, going to the grocery store, and I saw this houseless person approaching me. And you could tell at a glance that he had this mental illness, as a lot of houseless people do, unfortunately, since the 70s, when we turned our, our mentally ill people out into the streets with no kind of transition. Um, we now are a country of mentally ill houseless people, like a huge percentage of our population actually is, tragically enough, which says a lot about us, but not to get off into a tangent. So I suddenly had this in my head. I suddenly thought, he is going to reach out for you and try to grab you and push you into the street. And like, it's a life or death kind of thing. Like this was a narrow sidewalk near a really busy street with multiple lanes and like cars moving really fast. And, and I trusted it was one of those instances where I knew. And so I literally went out into the street when there were no cars coming. There was a break in the traffic and ran around him. And as I was running around him, he did exactly what the message said. He reached out to try to grab me like really hard, violently. He was reaching toward my neck or my face or, um, and it was scary. And, and then I went on my way. I survived. So it was another instance where if I hadn't had the message, I would probably be dead. 
Oh, and now I'm remembering a final one. Okay, sorry. There, there are more of these. It's just, it's hard to remember everything all at once, right? So when I was in my later 20s, a little bit further on, um, I attracted someone to me through my own activity, which I don't want to go into here, who turned out to be a serial killer. And I went to meet him out of a kind of desperation emotionally and and kind of sociologically, like having no place in the world feeling that way. And my partnership with someone not working out and needing to flee. Um, so I went to meet him across country, I actually took a bus there. And when I stepped into the bus station in his state, in his city there, I won't go into all the details, and I looked at him, I instantly knew, and it was a spiritual knowing, where I could just see his spirit through his eyes, I could just, and when he spoke to me, his voice, the woodenness, I don't know how to explain it other than it was a spiritual sensing, and I suddenly knew, this person wants to kill me. Like, it was like... 100% surety, all alarms on, kind of knowing. And then everything that he did from that point when I walked in from there uh, verified that sense of knowing. So he grabbed my suitcase away from me really fast so that now a lot of my essential belongings were in his care and I had to kind of go with him. And I was looking around the bus station and it was in this southern, this deep southern state that was kind of the area was a little backward and I could intuitively pick that up just being there but I didn't feel like it was safe to call for help I felt like I was stuck like if I call for help they might just think I'm crazy or he might turn it around on me and say I'm crazy I had that strong sense so I went with him to his car we went out the door and when we got to his car he opened up the back the trunk and he to, to put my suitcase in but in the trunk there was nothing else in there it was completely immaculate like freshly vacuumed nothing like spotless other than a sword one of those like samurai japanese japanese swords laid out in the very middle like almost placed in an ocd fashion and everything else in his interior of his car was like totally clean nothing extra like freshly vacuumed looking and it was really clear to me that this is meant to be intimidating then I, I was I was really a wreck. My nerves were a wreck and it was hard to talk, but I got into the car because I felt like I really had no choice. And I, I know it's easy to judge these kinds of things if you haven't been through them yourselves, but just please try to bear with me here. And I got in and I turned to him and I said, uh, I need to make a phone call. And I called like a relative to say I arrived and I'll call you soon to let you know I'm safe. I just started going through all these safety procedures I knew to try to protect myself. I checked his door to see if I could unlock it or if there were kid locks, like if I could like get out and roll if I needed to. And I said to him, please don't take off. I wanna sit here and talk to you and make sure I feel safe. But sh after I made the phone call, he did start taking off. He didn't honor his agreement. So like gradually he was just revealing more and more of these signs that he wasn't, that he was exactly what I sensed he was, that he was a killer, like a serial killer, and he wanted to kill me. I definitely got the sense from his, um, just his mannerisms and his eyes that he had killed multiple times, that it wasn't just me. Um, and I realize a lot of people are at this point are going to dismiss me and say I'm crazy. You haven't been in that spot. And a lot of people judge the victims of serial killers and the people who knew them and say, why didn't you know? Why didn't you report this? Why didn't you 
you know, so much, there's so much victim blaming, but honestly, when you try to explain this stuff to people that kind of scratch their heads and think, well, it really is that evidence. They, they want, they want to dismiss anything that seems a little fantastical, like out of the range of normal experience. But the, the activities that I was involved in at the time, honestly invited trouble. They made me a target for him. And those are the ones I don't want to go into detail about right now. Um, so we had agreed ahead of time that we were going to stop at a waffle house. <laughs> They're very common in that area. And then I could have breakfast after my long journey. And I personally think that was part of his modus operandi to have a, p a place to stop to make sure things were going okay and that he kind of had me under his control so then he could then move on to step two of like taking me to an isolated area and doing what he needed to what he wanted to um but we went into this place and he was kind of staring down at me like it was his prey and as we talked he got more and more upset in this controlled way like his body language didn't change much but his face started turning red his eyes started bulging in a peculiar way like i've never seen before where his eyebrows lifted and the area around his eyes kind of pulled back and it's like when you study body language or you look at like nature with a with a bird like a hawk preying on a, a creature below the eyes will pull open wide, as wide as they can go, so that you see so much white in the eyes, in order to increase the vision of the prey. And it also had a look of rage to it, and he started to have these veins that were bulging out in his face. So it was literally written on his face how enraged he was at me that he couldn't control me, because I was sitting there asking him questions, trying to get him to explain himself, saying that things didn't feel right. And this was just enraging him. He wanted me to be like this perfect victim. Um, but he was, we were in a booth and he was facing people, someone who was sitting behind me and they witnessed him. And later they became important because I needed a little bit of extra money to make it in a cab back to the bus station the guy who I met there, the creepy guy, he had told me ahead of time on the phone before I came out there that I should purchase the return ticket ahead of time. But instead of listening to him, I held on to that money so that I was able to return when I needed to rather than waiting a number of days and being trapped out there. But I didn't have the money for the cab because I didn't quite anticipate how things would unfold. Um, and then the woman behind me said later when I was trying to get help from people around me, to leave the area and get back to the bus station she said I saw him and she said I understand like I didn't need to go into lots of explanation she saw how freaked out I was she saw how he treated me and acted and she confirmed for me you know this this was an outside observer confirming that something was really off um, I ended up calling the cops from a payphone and the woman accompanied me so I'd feel safe um, and meanwhile that guy came back into the restaurant after I told him to leave. He watched me for, through his like rearview mirror from the parking lot in a creepy way. And he came back in to beg me, and he, he did this fake crying. He actually sat there and pretended to cry while his face still looked kind of like he was, he was fighting, that there was rage showing on it. And he kind of, he tried to give an impression of breaking down and crying, but he was rubbing his eyes and I couldn't see any actual tears. And I didn't, I didn't really see any tears there. Um, 
And then he seemed to leave, like I told him, no, you need to leave once and for all. And he seemed to leave the area. But when the cops came, they saw him around the corner waiting in his car. So he was just waiting for me to potentially leave the restaurant and start walking back to the bus station by myself or something. So he could like grab me or convince me to get into the car. I, I definitely had the impression he didn't want a huge scene. He didn't want to do anything that he could go to jail for so or prison for. So he was uh, watching his behavior super carefully. Anyway, um, there's more to this story because I ended up communicating with him online later and he did really creepy stuff like send me pictures of, a, of a, his weapon collection and say there was a pocket knife in the car that day. And like he would he would play with me. And I mean, I could probably write a book about that experience. Um, and I don't mean to go on and on about it, but the point really is just that I knew I just had that sort of spiritual knowing it wasn't anything that you would prove in a science lab. Sure. His body language might've been a, a bit weird, but for scientific purposes, that's not enough to prove that someone's a serial killer. And I can't tell you the names of his victims but I did watch him online for a long time after that, and he was on the social media site, and he would always keep 30 female friends, and um, one would get dropped periodically, and then he'd add another one, and he was always adding females who fit a certain profile, which once again, I don't want to go into detail about that, but um, he... Uh, I even found a thread on there where he was inviting one of these girls to go and visit him in his state and that was sort of his whole approach was lure the woman to his state because he was probably protected by the rules there in that state I also found a blog he had online under a different name and it, it takes a lot of explanation for, to lay this all out I didn't really want to do all that here I'm not trying to turn this into a creepy podcast but the point is, I actually was able to ultimately prove it to myself in a way that an investigator could prove something with enough evidence to perhaps bring it before a court. But I called the FBI repeatedly, and the first time they said, okay, we'll take his name in case anything else comes up, and then we, can, we have like enough people complaining about him that we can try to do something. And then the second time, unfortunately, I got a guy who pretty much laughed me off the phone and told me that the guy is just a stalker and that most stalkers don't kill their victims, that he probably just has a crush on me. He didn't want to listen to me. And within a number of years, I lost track of the evidence that I had had all digitally that I'd saved. But yeah, long story short, I knew, I just knew things that there was no way I could have known ahead of time with that guy. And I'm convinced he was a serial killer. And it, it, it haunts me. It haunts me that I can't do anything about it. I did what I could. So ending on that dark note, I'm sorry. I'm sorry if I'm in a little bit of a heavy mood tonight. It's A lot of it has to do with exhaustion and stress. I really try not to bring in too many personal details or this becomes like a, an autobiography. Because I can sometimes get into this sort of confessionist autobiographical mode. That's that's one side of my personality anyway. But I want this to really be about exploring spirituality and analyzing different beliefs. So I try to keep the focus there. All right. And I, I hope that you, wherever you are, are having a good day or night. And peace be with you. And may all of the darkness of the end of this podcast just wash away. <laughs> And the more contemplative aspects remain with you.